Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm Harmony and I'm here with my co-host, Russell Kay. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> How are you doing, Russell? Good, good. I'm so excited. Uh, a very uh, old friend of mine uh, has done us a tremendous honor by agreeing to come on the show, and I wanted to introduce him to everyone. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Gopi, how are you? Russell, Harmony, lovely to be here. I am doing fantastic. I'm honored to be on the show. Oh, fantastic. I have a, a short uh, intro I wanted to read. Um, first, I should ask you, I'm, I'm about to, to butcher your last name. I think it's Kalayil. Kalayil, yes. Ah, okay, good. Kalayil. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. Kalayil is Chief Evangelist, Digital Transformation and Strategy at Google, Board Advisor to the CEO for Plato, TaskHuman, Jiffy.ai, and author of The Happy Human, Being Real in an Artificially Intelligent World. Uh, our friend Gopi is an avid yoga practitioner, a triathlete, um, I think he still is. I'm not sure after his recent knee injury. Uh, public speaker, a global traveler, and a Burning Man devotee where he did, in fact, break his knee. He, is, <laughs> he has spoken at TEDx, Renaissance Weekend, the World Peace Festival, and Wisdom 2.0. Uh, he hosts a TV program on cable and YouTube called Changemakers. Gopi, I wanted to talk about all of these things with you if you have a moment. Russell, thank you. I'm happy to talk about all of these things. And uh, uh, I applaud the amazing work that both of you are doing on this world in the context of yoga and spirituality and mindfulness. Thank you. What we like to say is that um, you know, people have a you know, crisis in their life, and then at some point they found a uh, they found they found harmony. Uh, they found a, a resolution to their crisis, and so does the show Finding Harmony. It seems like everyone has these crises that they have to find resolution to. Is that what happened to you, literally, Russell, in your life? You had a crisis and you found harmony. I would agree <laughs> on many on many different fronts, literally and figuratively. That's exactly what happened <laughs> to me. I, I agree with that. I actually remember. Um, meeting you i don't know if you if you do um but i was in a parking garage in san francisco at a yoga journal conference about 10 years about 10 years ago and i remember i took one look at you and a very tall french lady uh, i think her name was albert uh, yeah 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 uh and um and i said to myself I think I'm about to get to know this guy. I just had a feeling. And I was like, hmm, yeah, his energy feels like it's coming right towards me. And sure enough, we had dinner together that night. <laughs> Do you remember? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, along with uh, Tim Ryan. Yeah, Representative Tim Ryan, the, the mindful congressman. We the, the we had dinner. I think Carrie Kelly was there. I Sean think Korn. Sean, Sean Corn was there. Um, that's sort of funny. I think being, I sort of, what is that when you see someone across the room and you just know that we're going to know each other for years and years? What is that? Yeah, it's like an energetic connection and an intuition that tells you that you're able to read people, read energies and, uh, and, and 
and feel like there is something here that draws me to this person. Yeah, it certainly did. You you glowed, and you had this kind of um, uh, shamanic quality to you. And I thought, oh, he's interesting. <laughs> Goodness, and um, yeah, you you definitely you've you've always been so friendly and generous with me. And I and I'm I was very grateful that you've you've offered us your time on so many different occasions. For example. Um, you volunteered to take uh, our our Ashtanga yoga teacher, Sharat Joyce. You took him on a whole tour of the Google campus a couple times, which was very generous of you. I, I have this very clear memory of being on the Google campus the first time, and you took us on this incredible Google staircase, which I, I wonder if you could describe for us. Um, I remember at the time you told us that the number one Google search um, uh, uh, th what's the thing that comes up when you when you Google the number one the number one thing that came search. up on Google yeah. on a search result. Thank you. Uh, after Brexit, was what is the European Union? That was such a phenomenal way to start the conversation. What was that stairwell that we were all on? It's one of the exhibits that we have on the Google campus where there is a staircase that actually leads from one floor to another. But on the staircase, we scroll the top search terms on the, <laughs> on the base of every step. So <laughs> as you are climbing the stairs, you can look at the top 15 or 20 searches that are happening currently. Wow. Um, and it's a way to peer into human consciousness because yeah. collectively it gives you a, a, a feeling of what is humanity most interested in at this point in time. Yeah. It was amazing because I, I had lived for, for several years in, in England and I was struck by it. And I thought, my God, they really don't know what they've just done. They have no idea. <laughs> and it struck me as a kind of... Um, indicator of the the age of misinformation that we were about to to enter is that people were really kind of taking advantage of these sorts of things and and uh irony the and the irony of that of not knowing what you're voting for that we have so much information and yet so little, little understanding. accuracy or understanding of it i don't know you must come across this all the time though like working in google this idea of like collective consciousness, you must be able to kind of see or predict or, or have a feeling of where things are going. Yeah, in a way you can uh, get a good sense of what human beings are looking for, what they're most interested in. And it's data that you know, at a certain level you can also access. If you go to Google search trends, you can see uh -huh. what is being searched for in different parts of the world and different languages and uh, you can look at it by categories, et cetera. And it's a great way by which we all get an understanding of what yeah. humanity is most interested in at this point in time. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know you could do that. What a, what a tip. That's very meta. Like, enter the metaverse of Google. But, <laughs> figuratively, yes, but literally they're different companies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's no, very cool, though. Like googling, googling Google. <laughs> it's a publicly available tool called Search Trends. Search Trends. Cool. Okay. That's amazing. Oh. 
I, you know, I think at the time also we we were able to sit together. Um, I think Sharat was there and Anne Finstead and and you and I, and I, I think it might have been Anne that organized um, working with you. I, I I don't remember. I don't know if it was it was me or, that called you or, or Anne, but I was really struck by the story that you told us um, about your life and how you you came to be here. And I didn't know if you could take a moment to help to share with us how you, how you came to be where you were. I think, I think you took your, your MBA in, in Kolkata, uh, but that's not where you're from. You're maybe you're from Tamil Nadu in Tiruchirappalli. Um, what is it? Tiruchirappalli. Yeah. Chirupali. Is that where you're from? No, not from there, but both have both places of context. And yeah, it is true. I was born and raised in India. I'm originally from the southern Indian state of Kerala, which is where my family is from. Oh, the uh, the context of Tiruchirappalli is that's why I did my undergrad degree in engineering in Kolkata because I went and did my one of my MBAs. I have two MBAs, so I did one MBA at the Indian Institute of Management in Kolkata, and then eventually, I, when I ended up in the US, I went back to get business degree from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I can talk about that aspect of my life. Yeah. Yeah. One. It's a big long story and uh, uh well let me give you a, a context to answer the question. This is a kind of a a bananas question that we ask all our guests. You know, what sort of um spiritual background or did your parents have? And of course, that seems like a, a bizarre thing to ask someone in India, where it's like for our experiences as Westerners coming to and everything is has a spiritual aspect. Everything has a spiritual interest. Everything sort of radiates um, consciousness, whereas things are so so much more non secular here as to be, you know, you kind of have to ask someone if they do have. A spiritual interest because you don't take it for granted here yeah yeah um so it is true that in india you can generally regard it as a very spiritual country and there is some element of spiritual or sacred practices that seem to radiate across the entire culture and life and uh, daily expression uh, so in, the, in that context my family's uh, traditional Indian Hindu family, and therefore there are many things built into their rhythm and uh, practices of life on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And you get exposed to a lot of aspects, which, you know, given the training you had, Russell and uh, Harmony, you would say fits into the domain of bhakti yoga practices. Mm -hmm. yeah. Devotional. Devotional, temple worship, chanting, etc. cetera. Uh, so there was that exposure. But my own, and given where I was growing up, there was a lot of access to many of these tools and lectures and workshops and teachers, etc. But in a very traditional orthodox kind of style. But I was drawn to some of it on my own and uh, got exposed to it early on. And I don't know why they drew me, but they drew me like in my teenage years when mm -hmm. it was not that cool among my friends to go <laughs> on these pursuits. And now it's like hip and trendy. We have yeah. yoga teachers around the world like Harmony. So it's interesting that. <laughs> completely different vibe uh, but back then uh, so early on in my teenage years when I was in high school I already found my guru and uh, was on to a certain spiritual path I'd learned how to meditate I'd started my meditation practice I also went and became a yoga teacher I was the youngest in my class 
oh. all of this before you know it had become trendy and popular around the world. So something drew me there. In Indian culture, we'd call it because of some kind of samskara. So yeah. the seeds of it were already sown even at the time of your birth. Mm-hmm. And did you find that your you, maybe your parents were averse to these choices and they were sort of pushing you towards engineering, like you should leave these things alone? <laughs> <laughs> There's always that dichotomy that you see among modern Indian parents and when they... They want the kids to pursue a very successful secular professional career and go to engineering mm-hmm. school and med school. Mm-hmm. And they appreciate and revere these other teachers who are in these traditions. But when their own children want to sit on inkling, they get a little anxious. And yeah. they, they have reverence for like a Swami, as long as it's not your child who wants to go to <laughs> <laughs> This is true. <laughs> wow. Well, what did that look like? Say, when, when you, you found your spiritual path and you found your, your guru. How did you find your guru? Yeah. And was that on a daily basis you were going to visit? or? Well, uh, this saying in the Indian culture that you don't find your guru, the guru finds you. Yeah. And that's probably what happened to me also. I don't think I found my guru. The guru found me. It was that. Uh, woman guru, her name is Rama Devi, and uh, uh, my parents had moved to this town, Trivandrum, or Tiruvannantapuram, as it is called now, or as it is always called, but that is the uh, traditional name in Malayalam. And uh, next to where my parents stayed was a spiritual center that she had established where people would go for their practices, including daily meditation, etc. And I would just walk past it without paying any attention to it. But one day I was drawn to walk and something drew me to just step inside. And I liked the atmosphere and I sat through their evening. During sunset time, they have a practice or a ceremony that they do collectively, Deeparadhana. So I sat through it and felt very calm and very peaceful. Something attracted me to it. So I went the next day and the next day and I just kept going there regularly. And then eventually I met the teacher who had established that center. She lived in a different town in Mangalore, in Karnataka. Mm. But I got an opportunity to meet with her and uh, understand her philosophy and her teachings and mm-hmm. was drawn to it. And that's how the journey began. Mm. Wow. Eventually being initiated into that path. And was that very difficult then to, you might have felt like that was a, a, a passion and a path for you that you had to, steer away from to go study engineering and then then business up north no it was not difficult you know I still all melded with different aspects of my life this is one aspect of my life and it did not conflict with other things that i wanted to do in life but all anything oh. i would say only helped me oh. uh, and around the time russell also shortly a few months after that after i was sort of formally initiated I also signed up for a yoga teacher's training course at the Shivananda Ashram oh, in, in Kerala. In Dam in Kerala. So that exposed me to the formal practice of, I would say, the uh, all four paths of yoga in a more formal sense, mm-hmm. but the yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, and raja yoga. And specifically also helped me train to become a yoga asana teacher. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because those choices for us, you could argue... Uh, destroyed all other paths for, in our life. When we went the yoga path, it's sort of everything else had to kind of go to the wayside because it's, you know, we we devoted 
everything to that to that path and all of our our uh, it was it wasn't quite as balanced as what you're describing yeah i think it's something that maybe a lot of westerners kind of struggle with is they discover yoga and then it it feels like it's such an opening or such a beautiful kind of practice or transformational experience that almost they start to um kind of like move away from all the things in their culture because of the the connection or the attraction to yoga which in some ways I think is quite natural when you get really involved with something or you really love something you want to immerse yourself in it but it sounds like you were able to kind of immerse yourself in it but also still like maintain a focus on your career your studies your like growing in secular life as well and do you think that's because of it being a bit more immersed in the Indian culture that you didn't feel like you had to necessarily like cut yourself. Yeah. Off. Cut yourself off from the culture, but that it was like just more integrated as a way of life. Well, growing up and the way it was melded in, it felt it was all very integrated into your yeah. holistic life. It didn't seem like a separate thing. It definitely didn't feel mutually exclusive. Mm. It felt actually highly integrative. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a tiny example of that is in the way that at least these aspects of coexist in Indian culture, and I didn't have the appreciation of it till I stepped outside of it. And now I can look and and see it. So I would notice that in the town where I went to high school, um, on the way from my home to the high school alone, there were multiple centers of I would, let's call it, for lack of a better word, honoring the sacred. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and already open every weekday. They just don't wait for like Fridays or Sundays for it to open. It's like every day of the week. Yeah. And five in the morning, you know, mm. lights are on, the oil lamps are lit. And people would stop. You could see them there on the, you know, they're on their way to work or school. They'll stop and, and maybe offer a little prayer or worship or something like that, yeah. just on the way to work. And evening also, they might do that on the way back from work. And you get into the, a taxi to go somewhere and the taxi may drive crazy, but the taxi's insurance policy seemed to be an entire shrine that sits on the dashboard. <laughs> the right. flower, and there's incense stick burning on the dashboard. Yeah, 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 a little yeah, banana yeah. offering yeah, to one of yeah. the deities. And you know, you, you grow up with it. You don't think anything odd about it. But now when you look back, basically the taxi driver was carrying an entire uh, uh, temple. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, moving, moving so temple. Uh, it is not uncommon for me to just walk by and I would look at hotels and textile shops and it would say like uh, Lakshmi textiles or Ganesh yeah. cookies yeah. or, uh, or Muruga vegetarian restaurant. Yeah. But basically all of the businesses are named after the names of the divine as well. And, yeah. and uh, you know, There'd be buses flying on this roads and the bus would have a picture of Hanuman on the side of the bus. And yeah. So yeah. it's all just melded into the chaos of everyday life. And therefore, you don't think of it as like a separate thing. You have to kind of find your way to. It is, yeah. It's just there. And you adopt and accept as much of it as you want to. Yeah. I, it reminds me, uh, when I'm driving and... Where I'm, when I'm being driven in India, I often want to uh, 
to mention to the driver, you know, this is Islamic wisdom, you know, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. (laughs) (laughs) You can have all of the incense burning, man, but like really maybe drive more carefully. (laughs) It's beautiful though. You bring up something that is, I think, probably my most favorite aspect of Indian culture and being in India is that that enmeshment of of the mundane world with the divine world and having these constant reminders like everywhere you go all the time that there's something beyond the human mind the human body the human experience that we're having that there's something much greater and and um and we're all a part of it but it's also like beyond any one human or any one thing and i just i love that about um the culture of india and being in india um specifically because it's it's every in every part of india that is i think the unifying kind of element is that um that integration integration of the divine and the mundane all together it's wonderful I, it reminds me, um, my my cousins in uh, in Illinois. I think they also experience a similar kind of integration that you're describing, where they have their spiritual lives. Uh, they're Pentecostal Christians, and so they go to church every day when their work is done. Oh. And they're very quite certain. Why, why would you watch uh, non secular television when you could go to church and be entertained and fulfilled? by union with, you know, Jesus. Yeah. And so there's like, you re- it's a really serious question, you know? And so they, I think they would very much enjoy seeing like the face of Jesus on every merchant shop and <laughs> I don't know government <laughs> building. And I think they would like to see that. And so it, I, I wonder about your, ex, your, your experience of of coming to the United States and coming to UPenn, because I think about what a conflict we're in in this country between the secular and the non-secular and people who have spiritual interests, maybe because of a religious vacuum, and then people who have very serious orthodox interests who are, and these groups of people um, are at war with each other in this country. But I, I'm. I still. I want to get back to, to your experience, and if that was your experience when you when you came here, and what was your impression of, of America, Philadelphia, let's say, <laughs> <laughs> when you came here. Yeah, I didn't go up to Philadelphia first. Actually, I was living in Hong Kong before that. Wow. Oh goodness! I moved to Hong Kong for work, yeah. and from Hong Kong, I moved to San Francisco to work for a few years. From San Francisco, I moved to New York to work mm-hmm. on. Uh, Wall Street, and, uh, and then uh, from the financial services sector, moved from there to North Carolina, and then I applied to business school and I ended up in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia uh, was not my first stop, just like a year three or four of living in America that I ended up. But Russell, you have to understand that uh, when you grow up in India, you're growing up in this very multicultural, plural society. And uh, there are all sorts of belief systems and practices that coexist. People who believe in something, people who don't believe in, people who take a very interesting uh, intellectual approach to their practices, people who have very 
rigid orthodox practices, they all coexist. So you grew up in a culture where there is an opportunity for things to coexist. So when I came here, I only saw diversity. I didn't see, I didn't perceive that much as things being at war or at conflict. Uh -huh. There are, it's a large country. It's integrated in many different kinds of, in fact, that's one of the strengths of the country that it allows for people with different groups, with different uh, practices and belief systems to all kind of operate in the, the freedom that they want. Mm. So that's what uh, struck me. Wow. And I was impressed by that. Because at the end of the day, there is enormous amount of freedom uh, in these contexts. Mm. Goodness. I love that. Gosh, yeah, it's, a, it's such a fresh experience of, of our of our current reality that I um I, f I feel that um I'm I'm s I, I have a sense of uh of foreboding about uh you know uh. <laughs> it exemplifies that quote that you don't see the world as it is, you see the world as you are. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for that. Yeah. Kopi's yeah. <laughs> obviously very much enlightened <laughs> and <laughs> seeing the world through the eyes of union and integration. <laughs> you, I'm not sure. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and so did you, did you find that you were also able to maintain your, your spiritual practices as, as you were, um, moving from Hong Kong to San Francisco to New York to North Carolina to Philadelphia? Uh, use the word, did you find yourself able to uh, maintain your practices? I would, you know, I think the more appropriate term to use is I struggle to keep up with it because it's not easy as you go through these different contexts of life to be able to hold on to all of these things with uh, integrity. But I try to maintain hold on to some semblance of it or at least there was a daily reminder of it that i should mm -hmm. and some days were better than the others some periods were better than the others mm -hmm. uh, i would say the earlier parts the engagement or daily awareness and practices were minimal in later years it became much more deeper for a variety of reasons first is uh, I thought I felt like there was a general acceptance of many of these practices that you could see in the world, especially in the USS. More people became aware of practices like yoga or kirtan, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, second, in my own life, I started understanding the uh, need and importance of keeping up with these practices. Mm. What was it that like? made you see that that made you feel like oh i really need to make sure i'm doing this type of self-care spiritual practice was it stress or burnout or anything like that burning man no, it was <laughs> <laughs> burning man burning man uh no harmony it is more of a light bulb going off in my head uh, which eventually you know this is what led to the writing of my first book called The Internet to the Internet. Oh, um, I love it. Yeah. And you can even see the font choices that I used. Yeah. The, the digital computer font and yeah. internet with the Devanagari Sanskrit yeah. language. Yeah, it's like Sanskrit. It's beautiful. Yeah. So it came with this realization and uh, that it really happened 
after I had a conversation with Sadhguru, who was visiting Google one day, and uh, after he had spoken in Davos, one of the execs at Google invited him to drop in the next time he was in the Bay Area. And I was asked to join that meeting and have lunch with him. And while I was having lunch with him, there's something that he said that I thought was very profound, and it really left a memorable impression in my in my mind. And that was, uh, he said, this asset that we have, this tool that we have, is the most important resource in your life. And if you ask somebody, what is the most important resource that you have, they may talk about different things like house and money and well mm. possessions but he said this inner technology is the most important by inner technology i interpreted it as first of all our body the physical container mm-hmm. our brain the cognitive function with which we perceive information and the world uh, our emotions our responses to things and events that happen around us and our overall energy that gives us that drive, that motivation, that creativity. So collectively, this is what, and this is what defines you as Harmony, and this is what defines you as Russell. So this is the most important resource, and that's because all of our life experience gets filtered by this layer. Mm. There is no life experience outside of this container of our body and mind and awareness and emotions. Meaning, if you had lunch today, Harmony, that lunch is currently being digested and becoming parts of your body. It's becoming energy and it's becoming your blood. It's becoming your cells. Uh, As you're listening to this conversation, you are processing my words. You're processing my tonality. You're processing my gestures and interpreting it. It's forming little impressions in your brain and uh, it's giving you some context and understanding. If you take one of my CDs and have three Kirtan albums, you may be aware of them in the Kirtan Log series. Uh, yeah, three albums. Uh, you listen to that music. The music, as you hear the sound and the rhythm and the harmonies, uh, it has a certain impression on you. It, has, it changes your emotion. So all experiences in your life has to be filtered by this layer. Okay, Is that logical? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. The second principle I arrived at is that as human beings, we are all motivated to express ourselves in different ways. Self-expression is what we do throughout our life. And this self-expression, uh, <clears throat> in our highest state, we want to contribute to the world, uh, give to the world, and bring up our creativity through various forms of self-expression. So whether it is through the acts of service, as Russell might have done in, in, in his various uh, organizations that he supported and worked with, or whether it might be you know, teaching and having a positive impact on the life of people, as you do now, Harmony, with mm-hmm. your Ashtanga Yoga teaching and practices, uh, or whether it is the podcast series that you use to kind of send messages to a large population by having conversations with interesting people. But it's a piece of music you create, a business, an entity that you do, or an act of service. Whatever it is, these are acts of self-expression. And it, all of those acts of self-expression also has to come from this container, from our body, from our mind. It's through our hands, through our ideas, through our words, through our creativity that we have self-expression. So I arrived at this logical conclusion that if 
somebody can teach us how to put this container into a state of peak performance, how to use all of these assets in a very orchestrated peak performance kind of way, you experience life at a peak state because this whole thing functions very well. Mm -hmm. And you express yourself at a peak state because these instruments work in harmony mm -hmm. and in a peak performance state. And that's really what led me to say, hey, this practices are good uh, in that they are designed to put your inner technology, as I call it, the inner net, into mm -hmm. a state of peak performance, into a state of peak expression, and therefore you live a higher quality of life. And uh, the two corollary conclusions I reached as part of that thinking, uh, Russell and Harmony, was this, that I don't have to invent the methodology. Somebody has figured this out over hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. They've experimented with the body, they've experimented with the mind, and they have left footprints for us. They left the operating manual for us. It's in the form of the Padanjali Yoga Sutras. It is in the form of dietary principles built into Ayurveda. It's in the form of asana practices in various asana schools and lineages. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the operating principles are already there. I just have to pick up and practice. And the other conclusion I reached was nobody can do it for you. You can't hire a person to do it. Somebody <laughs> teach you the methods. They can teach you some of these principles, but you have to get up, unroll the mat, sit on the cushion, decide <laughs> to eat plant-based food and get rid of processed food. Whatever it is that you get out and walk in nature, find that half an hour of quiet moment, uh, turn on that Kirtan music, make those choices on a uh, everyday basis. Mm -hmm. To constantly use these tools to put yourself to state of peak performance. So that is really what led me to saying, how can I apply and integrate this in a more regular, disciplined manner? Mm. And which is what I've been trying to do, and I struggle with it. It's not easy because it takes a trouble. You know it. You both practitioners. Mm. Some days are better than the others. You mm. when you practice in community, and uh, it is hard. It is hardest when you're injured and you're post-surgery and your knee is in a locked brace and there's pain <laughs> <laughs> and you're walking on, on crutches. Yeah. What, what have you noticed? I mean, you just injured your knee and had surgery a couple of weeks ago. And normally what would your self-care practices be like and how have you had to adjust your perspective to accommodate your recovery? Yeah. So normally my daily self-care practices would involve some component of this, where I'd say, if I want to meditate, I just pull out the cushion. Right. And uh, both at work, where we have meditation rooms, or at home, and easily, without thinking, just sit on the cushion, cross leg, rest my hands on my lap, close my eyes, and go into deep breathing. But right now, I can't sit on the floor cross leg. I have to sit on a chair. And even when I sit on a chair, when your knees in a locked, uh, straight brace, it's not very comfortable and you can sit for five minutes and then some weird sensation takes over the knee and it's a little painful mm -hmm. and it's constantly distracting. Yeah. It's not easy to meditate when you have like a dull ache or shooting pain in your knee or yeah. responsible. So it's very distracting and, and uh, you have to surrender to it and say uh, this is my physicality situation. Also when you are practicing yoga, and I may not be as great as uh, both of you who are extremely qualified Ashtanga yogis are. We'll, we'll, we are say, we'll say we're. <laughs> we, we were retired. Yeah. 
Harmony, I have to say that some of the poses that you do in a, uh, on your uh, <laughs> site, whether it's I watch yeah. photographs of you in Ashtavakrasana or Titibhasana, it's like, yeah, wow. Yeah. This is very old photos it's pretty remarkable and so but and i have my own practice that even at this point i can do it like easily go into a headstand and stay there for three full minutes without fidgeting and go into various variations and from the headstand easily navigating my way into padmasana the lotus pose even mm-hmm. while standing on the head all of that is available and i'm happy and delighted and I don't want to say proud, just humble that I can mm-hmm. hold on to this in my body even yeah. as my body goes through each decade. But now all of that has been taken away from me, right? Yeah. So there's the humility to accept that and a big part of big part of the yoga teaching is that there is impermanence. Mm-hmm. Our bodies are impermanent and never changing. And don't be too attached to it. Mm-hmm. use it for your practice for your path but don't be attached to it and don't ever let your ego be the expression of your relationship with you and your body mm-hmm. uh, you read all of these things in the texts <laughs> but you don't quite fully understand it internalize it till a situation like this hits you and yeah. right now I've had to just simply sit there calmly and accept the fact that this body is has got its limitations. It's changing. It can get injured. It can get broken. Uh, we try our best to then repair it. And the process of repair takes time. It takes patience. It may never get repaired back to the state you were in before you saw all of this happen. And uh, you resist it. You want it to be. You don't want anything to change. You want something to <laughs> stay on forever. That's yeah. not going to be the case. No. And there's eventually the final process of it at some point, a lot of things are going to deteriorate, disintegrate, that you just may not be able to do the things that you were able to do as a yoga practitioner at 18 and 19 when I started the practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to surrender and accept it. And then there's the final deterioration and that, and the closing of one chapter of your life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Life itself ends in the current form. Yeah. Um, so, and it's a chance to reflect on all of that, meditate on all of that, and accept and be humble. The other thing, Harmony, is right now in a state where I'm very dependent on others. I can only walk using crutches. I can't even carry uh, a cup of water mm-hmm. on my own. I need somebody to carry it and put it because you can't hold it in your hand. Your hands, your crutches need your hand. So you improvise a little bit. I always carry a sling bag with me. I came out here to this meeting room with a backpack, and this wasn't my backpack, right? You adapt, but you do need a lot of help. And a big part of yoga is actually teaching you about the interdependence with other people. Yeah. And interdependence uh, gives you a sense of union or integration or harmony with others. Mm. We live in a culture where there's a fierce sense of independence. You're encouraged to be fiercely independent. And uh, a situation like this makes you recognize that you may not be that independent. You are interdependent. And it's okay. It's okay to receive that help. It's okay to ask for help. It is okay. And when you are in that situation, when you become aware of that interdependence, you're actually practicing another principle of uh, yoga. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, loving others, the opportunity to give acts of service. So many, many lessons coming from this particular situation on a daily basis, mm-hmm. fast and furious. Yeah. I wonder if, if that was at all the one of the most shocking things about coming to to the U.S. was that experience of uh, alienation or or that uh, independence is um, is uh, preferred. I, I I feel like one of the hardest things for me traveling abroad has always been that um, that chafing sensation that um, I. I I'm reliant on others and others are relying on me and, and I, I, I'm used to seeking isolation, which is not necessarily healthy, but I'm, I've been say programmed to. Uh, I'll say two things in response to that, Russell. So first is I, avoid using the word shocked. You know, you asked me, were you shocked when he came in? And it's like, no, I'm not shocked. I just <laughs> noticed. I just noticed <laughs> that, you know, different groupings of people, different cultures, different regions have different perspectives on how they live life. In some parts of the world, it might be highly community-oriented. That sense of privacy and space might be viewed very differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, know, you might have noticed this you know, traveling in on a train in India as soon as you know, everyone is curious about you. You look different. <laughs> yeah. I'm still looking at you and then you know, every move of yours is observed. Right? You, you know, open a bag to take out something and everyone is looking at like what's in the bag. And, mm. and for you, it might, you know, coming from Canada, it might come as shocking saying you know, it's an intrusion to my privacy. But yeah. it's just different ways by which different societies are organized and think of it in different value systems. So I'm never shocked. I'm just like intrigued by it. And I found it amazing and interesting. I'm curious about it. And it is true that there is... Uh, premium placed on a fierce level of radical self-reliance, as Bernie yeah. would call it. That's uh, fantastic. Radical self-reliance. Radical self-reliance. And wow. Great. And uh, mm-hmm. something to do with moving westwards and the pioneer mentality. And, uh, and, and America's a country where almost everyone came from somewhere. Mm. And, you know, they had to have a sense of adventure to leave their families in the uh, uh, in Italy or Ireland or Vietnam or, mm-hmm. or India and arrive here in, or South America and make a life of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely a pioneering spirit here. But I'm also acutely aware that no matter how much you claim to have, you are entirely dependent on a vast swath of humanity yeah. that is actually running this very high-functioning society. Mm-hmm. Your life would come to a standstill without but for all of these people. Yeah. Uh, here is an example of that. Uh, and this is where you know, you'd contrast. Um, again, in, in a society like India, at least when I was growing up, you know, if you had to deal with your own trash or if somebody took trash, that was a specific individual you may call. And therefore, that there is 
very visible and you realize you're dependent on someone else to help you with this. And here, it's an automated system that works like clockwork. On Sunday evening, I put out my three trash bins in neatly ordered boxes that say recycled and organic and uh, uh, general trash. And it gets taken away at 4 a.m. in the morning, you know, long before I'm up. Mm. A very, very highly efficient kind of system. And you don't, you've, I've never seen the person who actually does it. Mm. But there's an entire team of people that does waste management in your home and your office. And you're dependent on them. You're dependent okay. on them. And they realize uh, last week, the electricity went down on my entire street here in Redwood Shores, California. And uh, over the course of several weeks, the local utility PG&E was fixing it. And we're talking to some of the neighbors. There were some periods, and it was winter, it's cold, your heating system is down. During the day for a long period of time, there was no uh, electricity available, and therefore the home was not heated. And towards evening, as it was going dark, I was getting ready with candles and other things to light up the house in case it took a while for electricity to come back. It was just one day. And I remember growing up where I had moments like this a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I told some of my neighbors, we don't, I mean, on that day we noticed the pg workers here on the street fixing it and talked to some of them, etc. But how many times in the other 51 weeks did we ever pause to realize that we've had uninterrupted <laughs> electricity piped into our house, not even one second of failure. Mm. And it didn't happen automatically. We think it happens automatically. We think there is some miraculous force that makes it come. But it works only because there is a large organization behind it. There are people who are monitoring it, making sure that the system does not fail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we will never get to see them and thank them. So in that sense, in a, even in a highly organized society like this, there is a high level of interdependence. Mm-hmm. It may not be that visible. It may not, it may not acknowledge it. Uh, every time I have a meal, I say a prayer at home when I have guests, even at work when I sit with some of my coworkers, if I think they're receptive to it, I'll, I'll, I'll say this prayer. And I usually like the more classical Sanskrit version, mm-hmm. which if you may, I will repeat it right now. It goes, Ramarpanam, Brahmahavihi, Brahmanhau, Brahmanahudam, Ramayvatena Gandhavyam, Brahmakarma Samadhina, Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. And I like saying this prayer because it's, it gives me a moment to pause and acknowledge and even talk to the people around the table that a hundred people were involved in making this single meal happen, if you come mm-hmm. to think about it. If you think of the variety of food that's on your plate, given that we live in a very food abundant society, uh, a well-balanced holistic meal, you know, the kale and the lettuce and the tomatoes and the carrots and the zucchini and the broccoli. Somebody grew it, somebody planted it, fertilized it, irrigated it, harvested it, transported it, packed it, washed it, cut it, cooked it. And if you count all of the people who touched a single meal, a hundred people are involved. Mm-hmm. These people are doing jobs that are harder than what you and I do, in some ways tougher than what you and I want to do. Mm-hmm. You'll never get to see them and say thank you, but we are dependent on them. When I was growing up, I would witness in the small village where my family comes from in southern India and Kerala called Chittalanjeri, 
my grandparents were subsistence marginal farmers. Every single thing we ate was grown around the house by my grandparents. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have refrigerators. Uh, we barely had electricity. So nothing was stored. It was just straight harvested. And my grandmother would go cut things off the bushes or the floods and shrubs and bring it in and cook it. <laughs> and uh, I could look at a plate of food and say, oh, almost every one of these things, my grandparents grew it. They were rice farmers and they also had other crops around the house. A few things here and there they might have bought, but a lot of it they grew. Mm-hmm. I don't have those kids. Mm-hmm. If you tell me how many that people for the next three days, you grow your own food and cook it and eat it, I think I'll die very quickly. Yeah. So I realized how dependent I am. That's why I stopped to say the prayer. Thank you for all the 100 people that I yeah. am nourished. And so if you just think of even a simple thing like a meal, uh, we take it for granted because there's a vast food system here between the supermarkets and restaurants. And we think, oh, just go there, pay some money, it comes. But behind that, there's a whole host of human beings actively at work getting it to you. So it's a roundabout way of answering the question, Russell, where I say, Yes, we can talk of radical self-reliance <laughs> and being fiercely independent, but are we really? Right, yeah, not at all. How well would our lives function without the help, support, energy, and self-expression of these hundreds of people who on a daily basis make sure that we have a high-functioning life? highly socialized society, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> I thought one of the most uh, shocking things that you said, or, or perhaps the most radical things that you said, was um, about your your definition of uh, self-definition around being shocked. And it, it struck me as um, the that the tools of Patanjali are so embedded in you that... Uh, your first immediate experience of any new stimuli or information is to uh, observe it and not be caught in the ragadavesha of liking and disliking the thing. And it's like, oh, this is intriguing. I'll be interested in it. And it's such a it's such a beautiful instrument in managing pain and suffering, and also, you know, having to contrast those to good times, which might be you know, um, ter- terrible if if um, you have to constantly have bad times, and so uh, it's it was really really lovely to hear that. And I wonder if that was also um, part of your experience here in in, in North America is is that maybe you encountered people who didn't have these these tools. 